tuned for more rock and roll. All right. Welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. I'm Don DiMuccio, and we've reached another milestone. Episode 20. How the hell did a thing like that happen? And for this special occasion, we've got one of the most legendary drummers of the rock era, a man who started his career at the age of 15, forming the quintessential mod band, The Small Faces, which would later morph into The Faces when, at his insistence, they hired a certain Rod Stewart as lead singer. But many remember him for taking over as drummer for The Who, following Keith Moon's accidental overdose in 1978. Of course, I'm talking about musician and author of the autobiography Let the Good Times Roll, the great Kenny Jones. But first, a milestone like 20 episodes needs a very special co-host. But unfortunately, Chara wasn't available. (laughs) So in her place, the only human being to co-host the show three times, the Alec Baldwin of the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, my buddy David Robinette Tate. I don't know. I think I prefer the Tiberius one from the previous Oh, come on. Robinette. This is an important occasion. (laughs) President-elect. How the hell are you, Dave? I'm doing just great, Don. Thanks for asking. Yep, it's another wonderful episode, 20th. I'm so honored to be here. I can't say proud, but I'm honored to be a part of this. And we're in our 20th episode. And uh, What is that? Is that platinum? No, I think it's like cellophane. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. What are we doing, Dave? What are we doing? What have you been doing with yourself? I mean, you know, other than like being Mr. Rock and Roll Podcast. That's it. I just wake up, turn on the microphone, go back into my dungeon where I do things that are illegal in South Carolina. What? And crank them out. The podcast. (laughs) So, David. Yes, sir. When we started, what was it? Back in April? Yeah, yeah. You were the very first co-host of the show? I was your first, yeah. I was your first. Not the last. No, no. You've had many after me. Many co-hosts. Many co-hosts, many co-hosts. But of all... We need to specify that. All kidding aside, what was your favorite guest so far? Well, this is going to be my favorite guest, but I'll tell you, it's up there with Lib DeVito. I really enjoyed that show the most. Wasn't he great? And the one we did with Bo Diddley was dynamic. That was great, yeah. Because, I mean, anybody that can just talk so honest and not care. You know, everyone's so guarded today, and he didn't care. He just... He said what was on his mind, and, and that was it. I love it when our rock and roll heroes just, you know, they just, like, open up. This one here with Kenny Jones, I mean, it, you may actually make them feel comfortable. They And they open up with a lot of news and history. That, that was just amazing. It's amazing. I got to tell you, one of the things I've been noticing after doing 20 of these is they come on with a certain pattern. They get certain stories they want to tell. They say it in a certain order. They're prepared. They're basically, they're prepared to tell the you know what they want to talk about. When you can break them out of that and you can get them to go, you know, I haven't thought about this in years, but, and then they go down a detour. That's cool. It's something I'm just starting to be aware of and starting to learn how to do regularly because, you know, the stories they tell are great, but they've told them on every other show. And you just, you know, if you can find that one thing that gets them off the topic of what they thought they were going to talk about, that's when you get something really juicy and you get something really interesting. Well, you had him. You have him talking, and he's telling you things that it just seems like you, you and him, have been friends for years. You know, they'll see, they'll see. So, so what about you? You were supposed to be doing a podcast. What's going on? I'm still working on it. Man behind the curtain. It's called Man Behind the Curtain uh, Productions. I'm still working on it. I just I work a full time job uh, that takes up a good chunk of my time, so it's really difficult to um, find time and get it all together. What's going to uh, be the basic thrust of it? 
it's not going to be about music. It's going to be about just local issues or actually statewide issues here in our state, current topics and stuff like that. I'm going to interview uh, some some politicians. That's my other side job that I do. You know, school committee men, maybe a couple of councilmen, town council people, maybe an occasional state person. You know, I, yeah, Rhode Island is the right state for that. There's no doubt. Oh yeah, yeah. Here in New England, it's always full of excitement and adventure. We're going to do that. Who knows? Maybe I'll jump into something else. It depends on what can come up with or what we can work out with with my guests. So yeah, yeah. It's it's good. It's good. And then there's co-hosting with you. You know, I'm just honored to be a part of this operation. So, As well you should. Yeah, and I am. I uh, am. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Yes, it is. Now, we got a hell of a long interview today, so we're going to keep this little opening bit short. Yep. And we've got one hell of a special guest today to celebrate our platinum episode. And I want to play him on with one of my favorite songs growing up. The year was 1981. I was 10 years old. You must have been, what, in your late 40s? And this was played constantly on rock radio. I think it got as high as number 18 on the Billboard Hot 100, featuring Kenny Jones on the drums of The Who with You Better You Bet.
guest today is a household name to any fan of rock. As drummer and founding member of the preeminent British invasion mod band The Small Faces, he, alongside Steve Marriott, Ian McLagan, and Ronnie Lane, saw transatlantic success with hits like Lazy Sunday and the classic Ijiku Park. Later, a change in front man to Rod Stewart and a change in band name to The Faces saw more hits like the perennial FM staple Stay With Me but he may be best known for accepting perhaps the most unenviable job in rock history, replacing the irreplaceable Keith Moon as drummer for The Who, following Moon's accidental overdose in September of 1978. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and author of the autobiography, Let the Good Times Roll, one of my drumming heroes, Kenny Jones. Hello, Kenny. Lovely to meet you. Pleasure to meet you. Yes, great to meet you too. I only have about 13,000 questions for you, and that <laughs> just goes up to 1970, so let's see how we make out here. Okay, let's start with one. I'll start with the dumbest question. How has this COVID situation affected our 2020 schedule? It's, it's, oh, it's affected everyone, everyone across England, across Europe, but especially all the musicians, uh, all the drummers in the world, you know, especially over there and over here. Yeah. It's, it's really bad times. I know. Where are you um, situated right now? I'm in the deep countryside of Surrey, southern England. It's lovely. Sounds nice. Well, what was your inspiration to even pick up the drums in the first place? Well, I I was cleaning cars with a friend of mine for pocket money on the weekends and went around one side of the car, threw the sponge, it hit me in the face. <laughs> it got my attention and he said, I think we should form a skiffle group. 
I thought, I'd better find out what this is. I said, what's the skiffle group? He said, well, you get a tea chest and you get a broom handle and you put it in one corner and you get a piece of string and put it up to the other corner and you pull it tight and that's what makes a bass sound. I said, okay. Then he said, you get your mum's washing thing, and get some thimbles from your gran and stick them on the ends of your fingers and then you you go up and down with that washboard. You know? And I thought, this guy's gone mad. I tell you, he said, I'll tell you what, there's a, a skiffle group on TV tonight. Let's go and watch it. So I said, okay. So we went to my house and watched this TV. Don't forget, this is in 1959, yep. earlier. Yeah. The TVs were black and white, and it looked like looking into an eyeball. Terrible thing. Yep, yep. Uh, and so anyway, this band came on. It was a skiffle group. It was a, a guy called Lonnie Donegan singing Rock on the Lion, and he was playing banjo. And I fell in love instantly with the banjo. I thought, this is great. This is great sound. Love it. So I went to the shop. Funny enough, there was a banjo in a pawn shop near close to where I lived. And so we went up the next day to try and buy this banjo. And when we got to the, to the shop, the banjo had gone. It had been in the shop for three months before. So this day we wanted it, it had gone. So I went inside, I said to the guy, where's the banjo? He said, well, the guy, it's a pawn shop. The guy's paid for it. He's gone. Take it up. I said, can you get it back? He went, no, I can't get it back. So we left the shop. And my mate said to me, you're really upset, aren't you? So I said, yeah, I really am. I said, I really wanted that banjo. And don't forget, we had no money. Didn't know how we were going to pay for it anyway. <laughs> so, so we were that excited. Don't yeah. forget, we are kids. We're yeah, kids. Right. I was only like 12 years old. He said, well, look, my mate's got a drum kit. Shall I get him to bring it round this afternoon? I said, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, so I brought this drum kit around, which turned out to be bits of a drum kit. It was like a floor tom, a bass drum, two sticks. One stick was broken in half. <laughs> and so in those days, my, my dad was a bit of a part-time carpenter as well uh, in his spare time. So we got this glue, tried to glue this drumstick together. Don't forget, it before the days of Superbrew. Oh, yeah. Trying to do, glue this thing together for about an hour or two hours. We gave up in the end. So I learned to play drums on one and a half six. <laughs> and I don't suppose you remember what the brand names were of those. It made out of wood. <laughs> made out of wood. There you go. There you go. Well, what was your first kit proper? Well, when I got into it, I went to uh, a shop called the J60s Music Shop. It's in East London. I fell in love with this kit. My eye went straight to it. It's a, it a white drum kit. It's an Olympic, cheap Olympic version of a premier one. Yeah. I, I've still got that kit to this day. I, really? I can't believe it. That's great. It had, it had calf skins on it. That's... So real skins. Yeah, yeah. Um, I still got those skins on. <laughs> really? Um, wow. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. I learned to play the only three records we had in, in the house was 12 Street Rag and the theme tune to Rawhide and Blue Moon. <laughs> so I learned to play drums to those three records. 12 Street Rag was great introduction to playing along as far as jazz is concerned. Did you ever take proper lessons or was it just all by ear? No, all by ear. I've never had a lesson in my life. Really? Well, I think every drummer should learn... I'm so pleased I did it this way because I think every drummer should find himself first, find his own style, and then ask questions, and then sort of learn things. You know? Yeah. I don't look back. How did Ronnie Lane come into your life? Well, I heard about a jazz band locally that were playing in a pub. I went up there on this Friday night, and this guy was playing drums, and I sat in front of him, looking like I was old enough to drink. Because uh, I wasn't. I was looking like a young boy, sat in front of him. He started to play, and he was a, a singing drummer. I'd never seen a singing drummer before. He had a Reslo mic coming through his legs in between the snare drummer and the drum store, and so that was interesting. And so I watched him for a couple of weeks, and then he, he came up to me in the break in, in his set and said to me, are you taking the fucking piss out of me? I said, what? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you keep blinking at me. 
I said, oh, I know why. I said, because when you play, you blink, you go like that. And he went, no, I don't. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so we, we got off on the wrong foot. But then he became really, I got to know him literally a couple of weeks afterwards, you know, and he, I said to him, look, I'm learning how to play drums. I'm looking at what you're doing. So I'm just hoping to pick up stuff. Yeah. And then one day, one week I went up there and he, he said, uh, right, we've got a special guest going to come up and play drums tonight, ladies and gentlemen, uh, another drummer. I thought, great, who's that? Another drummer. I can watch another drummer. And he introduced me. Nope. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. So shaking like a leaf, I ended up sitting behind his drum kit. And then these three guys, they looked like giants when I sat at the drum store, all looked down at me. I looked up at them. They seemed like giants. And they said, right, here we go. One, two, one, two, three, four. But it sounded to me, because I was so scared, sounded like, one, <laughs> right, two. Right. Yeah, yeah. But, you know. One, two, one, two. And there was, I was playing jazz straight away. I could not believe it. It's like breaking all ties to the earth, you know, like an umbilical cord just broken. Yeah. And that was in heaven. I couldn't believe it first. And I was shaking like a leaf when I got off. Could not believe what I was doing. You know, about 10 minutes later, the barman came up to me and said, he said, Kenny, that was really good. He said, that was really, I really enjoyed that. He said, are oh, you forming a band? I said, yeah, I'm forming a band now. He said, oh, well, look, my brother's just learning to play guitar. He's only had bought a guitar two weeks ago, so I'll bring him down. So I said, yeah, okay. So the next week, in through the door, walks Ronnie Lane, his brother. Uh-huh. That's how we met. The bond it, just came fast, musically? Yeah. Well, straight away, we hit it off straight away. Yeah. So we formed a band called The Outcasts, and Ronnie Lane was playing lead guitar then, learning how to play guitar. So he was so learning to play, it was like looking down at the strings and going, pink, 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 you know, so it's really weird. <laughs> So one day he said to me after a couple of weeks, he said, I don't want to play guitar, can he? He said, I want, I want to play bass. I said, well, let's go up to the shop where we bought, by chance he bought his guitar and I bought my drums. Yeah. So this was on, on Saturday morning. We went to uh, the, sh- the same shop and this young Herbert came up to us and said, how can I help you, mate? How can I help you? And I said, he wants to buy a bass. So he wants to swap his guitar in for a bass. And he said, oh, come try this one. I've got a couple of basses you can try. So they went off and tried basses. And then I saw this drum kit out of my corner of my eye. So I sat behind it and I started to play it a little bit. And then this guy, the salesman, picked up a guitar and started to play it. And Ronnie started to play bass. That guy was Steve Merrow. The salesman? Yeah. Working part-time oh, on a geez. Saturday morning. Because then the shop owner right, nearly threw us all out because we were causing havoc <laughs> in the shop. So that's how we met. You can't make that shit up. No, you can't make it up. It's like it's meant to be. Well, that's what I keep saying. It was meant to be. We were meant to meet up. Because playing in the small faces, it was an amazing experience because we all had this hidden telepathy between us all. I mean, Ronnie Lane, Steve Mount never told me what to play. I never told them what to play. But yet we all knew exactly what to play.
So we ended up forming a band and we ended up building up a following in the London Cavern Club in Leicester Square, the famous Leicester Square in London. Yeah. People liked us, so we built up a following over six weeks because the music industry was so small in those days. The world got around to everybody in the music industry. So Don Arden sent his right-hand man down to, to talk to us, about a guy called Pat Meehan, and said, we've heard all about you. Don wants to meet you. Would you like to come up to the office in Carnaby Street tomorrow? And we said, oh, okay, fine. So we went up to the office the next day, and we met Don Arden. People probably realize that's uh, Sharon Osborne's father. Yeah, that's right. I knew Sharon when she was a little girl. Don Arden was like a big teddy bear, really. He just, he just loved us. And, so I'm cutting a long story short again. We ended up in, in the studio, and that's how we met Glenn Johns. And if anyone don't know who Glenn Johns is, Glenn Johns is a record producer. At that time, he was an engineer. He loved us, we loved him. We got along great in the studio, and we started to record, and that's it. And that's how we, you know, so we never looked back. And Glenn Johns developed a rather well-known drum miking technique um, yeah. that everyone talks about famously. Did he employ that with uh, Small Faces? Well, what he did was, he, he, because I said to Glenn a couple of years ago, I said, how did you get my drum sound? I said, because everyone's asking me, did you mic with two overhead mics? He said, no, just one. All that? So, just one? Yeah. I said, oh, well. I said, well, how did you get my lovely drum sound? He said, it's, it's you, you silly son. It's you. <laughs> it's he true. Said, well, what we did was we captured the room sound yeah. of the Olympic number one studio. He said, it's an ambient mic. He did close mic the, the snare. Yeah. And that's it, really. Over, everything was over. You know, it's very simple like that, a couple of mics. And that's it. And the rest of it was his tricks he did with, with it through the mixer. He must have close make the kick tune, huh? Oh, he did, yeah, he might have the kick drum, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. some of those early records, not you guys, but some of just, you know, standard pop records of the day, there is no kick drum. I mean, you just barely. Yes, I know. I know. It's awful. Terrible. Big empty space. There. Yeah, yeah. Actually, one of the first guests that I ever had on this show was uh, Shell Tommy. And I oh, Shell Tommy, yeah. He worked right. with you guys a bit, too. Yeah. I was working with these people. I mean, you were so young. I mean, I was surprised to learn that the first single you, you guys had was, what you're going to do about it? Yeah. What were you, 16? 15. I mean, this taking all the, working with these professionals and taking it on, what, what was it like? I mean. Well, it, I, you know what? It's like being swept off your feet. I never had time to think or do anything. I just went with the flow. And before I knew it, everyone wanted me to play on their records. So I started doing session work in between making albums with their faces and working with, the, sorry, the small faces. Yeah. And that's how I learned a hell of a lot. I ended up playing with big bands and reading music, that sort of thing. Made my own notes. Just just learned so much. Well, one of the things that kind of amazes me is that the small faces and the faces, it's not just a name change. It's not like the, the, the young rascals to the rascals. You know, it was basically the yeah. same outfit. You guys were literally two different bands in so many ways. Oh, yeah, big time. We were a great band, and we were we were playing all the great stuff. like Because our influences were like Booker T and the MGs yeah. and... Jimmy McGriff and, you know, that sort of stuff. Ray Charles and all that. So we ended up jamming all the stuff, playing on that kind of field. That's what we wanted to be known for. But, of course, the record companies wanted more another commercial hit record. And we found ourselves behind a trend of um, commercial records. And we could never lose this teeny bubble image we had. Yeah. We all got fed up with it, really. But one day it got to Steve more than anybody else. And he decided to walk off stage. And that was it. And leave us there which is a bit alarming and kind of very hurtful. Yeah, I can imagine. It was like losing a brother, you know. It's, it's kind of strange because when you've done so much together, we only together for about four, nearly five years, and we've done so much stuff together. So, so for one of us to walk away was a terrible experience. Rather than just, you know, sticking together and saying, hey, you know, yeah, we'll just do yeah. what we want and maybe 
you know. Well, we never, we never went to America like the Who did, you know. If we'd have got a chance to go to America, I don't think we'd have split up. Over bridge of sights To rest my eyes in shades of green Under dreaming spots To Ichiku Park, that's where I've been What did you do there? I got high What did you feel there? Well, I cried But why the tears there? Tell you why It's all too beautiful it's all too beautiful It's all too beautiful It's all too beautiful I feel inclined to blow my mind Get on up, feed the ducks with a bun They all come out to groove about Be nice and have fun and listen Tell you what I'll do What will you I'd do? I'd like to go there now with you You can miss out school Watch that be Why cool. go to learn the words of fool What will we do there? We'll get high What will we touch there? We'll touch the sky But why the tears there? I'll tell you why It's all too beautiful it's all too beautiful. It's all too beautiful. It's all too beautiful. I'm feeling kind to blow my mind. Get hung up, feed the ducks with a bum. They all come out to groove about. Be nice and have fun in the sun. It's all too beautiful. It's all too Now you're responsible for getting Rod in the band, Rod Stewart. Yeah. Tell me that story. The story of that was we were quite friendly with the Stones, and the Stones said, "Why you're looking for a new direction? We've got a warehouse where we keep all our stuff in there. We've got a soundproof room in the east end of London, a guy in Bermondsey, just over Tower Bridge." Mm. I said, "Why don't you go and hang out in there, do some jamming in there, play?" Whatever. So we did. Very kind of him. So after two or three weeks, we, me, Ronnie, and Steve were playing, and then so we realised that. But Ronnie Lane brought down his new next door neighbour, and that was Ronnie Wood. Oh. Uh, Ronnie was at that time was playing with the Jeff Beck band. Right. He was playing bass with the Jeff Beck band. Yep. And so Ronnie said, oh, "I'm I'm just converting to guitar. I want to play guitar, lead guitar. I don't want to play bass." It's the opposite of Ronnie Lane. Yeah, I was gonna say that. So Ronnie was learning to you know, convert to guitar. We were all jamming all the time, which was a fantastic experience. Boy, did he convert! So, oh yeah, no. <laughs> and then suddenly. Uh, uh, next week, Ronnie brought down his best mate, 
and Anthony Rod Stewart, who was also singing in a Jeff Beck band, both on a wage of £60 a week each. Now, had the Truth album come out at that point? I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm not sure. Well, did you know who Rod Stewart was as an entity? Or? Oh, yeah, yeah, because he, he was also trying to get a record deal with Andrew Oldham. So we used to pass each other on the, on the set. And I, I knew a great voice there. So Rod would sit on the amps waiting for us to have a break so we'd go up the pub and have a drink. And this went on for a couple of weeks. This, I said, look, we've got to take this seriously, you know, guys. You know, we've got to you know, start learning some songs and, and you know, singing. So... Max started to sing. I went, okay, great, yeah. But then, don't forget the drummer. The drummer can see everything that goes on. Sure. Ronnie Wood started to sing. I went, yeah, okay, right, lovely. Uh, <laughs> and then Ronnie Lane sang, and he had a lovely, well, Ronnie had a great voice, lovely, mm. lovely warm voice. But still, there was that bit missing for me, that raw, that raw sound of a bit, you know, a raucous singer. Right. And all the time, I, whilst this was going on, I kept looking at Ronnie, on, sitting on the amps. So we had a break late, later on, and we went up the pub. So as soon as we walked in the pub, I said, Rod, can I have a word with you? I went around the other. I said, how would you like to join the band? He said, oh, do you think everyone would let me? I went, yeah, of course they would. So, so that evening, we went back by chance. Alvin Lee, you know, the Alvin. Yeah, 10 years after. Yeah, he was having a little drinks party uh, in, in London, in the, behind Harley Street. That's when I said to everybody, can I have a private word to everyone? You know, so you know, four of us were upstairs. Rob was still downstairs. I said, look, I've asked Rob to join the band. And all I got was, no, we don't want another prima donna in the band. We don't want anyone walking out of this. Oh, uh, so I, I just stood my ground. I said, no, I think it's, it, Rod's going to be great for the band, basically. I stood my ground. That's how Rod started to sing with us.
missed unfortunately the heyday but from you know from the shows that i can see on on, on video you guys were fun raucous oh, yeah. Yeah. soulful no sloppy train wrecks yet loose in a beautiful way and a few soccer balls make an appearance mid-show sometimes it's, it's, too it's called alcohol <laughs> <laughs> but see now that's the thing you guys were known for hot drinking yet you and, and ronnie's rhythm section so solid so on the money did you ever have any issues you know getting pissed on beer and the, the only issue i had was if i couldn't get any beer oh there you go <laughs> brandy i can't drink brandy anymore because brandy and i you said we all drank brandy and cokes in those days brandy and ginger yeah and, and so sort of wine and stuff but it was great so and so yeah i think my liver will never be the same i don't think rod's liver will never be the same nor <laughs> ronnie, ronnie woods but the great thing about it was we all got along so well and it's like another adventure another sort of moment of discovery and we were discovering each other so it was a great band i mean did you know it's hard to think this year's our 50th anniversary wow incredible 50 years ago shit and i bet to you it just feels like yesterday yeah kind of yeah because i mean even though the faces split up again after a while all of us still get get together two or three times a year and cause havoc in any pub or restaurant we go to that's awesome we got back together to do a TV show with the London Philharmonic Orchestra yeah. uh, this year uh, in uh, February. And afterwards, we decided that we would get together and do it to celebrate our 50th anniversary. We would do a tour of America. And it worked out we couldn't do it till 21 anyway. Rod's going to be part of that and everything? Well, the thing is, we decided to do it, but then, of course, the virus happened. Yeah. Everything's on hold, everything. So we'll, we'll do something to celebrate our 50th anniversary. So what we've been working on, the three of us, is searching our vaults, uh, our archives for tapes. Between Ronnie and I and Rod, we found some incredible old tapes uh, of when we first got together. That's awesome. So, so we've been working on it. So watch this space. We're going to be coming out with some great stuff. One more question about the faces, and then we'll move on. Band members, especially lead singers, going off to do solo projects can be a real bone of contention. It's broken up a yeah. lot of bands. Yeah. 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 Rod Stewart, in those early days, kind of ran a parallel recording career with The Faces. You played on most of his albums. I'm not sure. I'm on bits of everything. I've, I've forgotten what I'm on now. <laughs> I had to go check. You were definitely on the first four. You know, how did that not become an issue? Well, because basically, I mean, we had no egos and all that. But the, what it was was when we first got together, we, we did a deal with Warner Brothers. Right? Warner Brothers uh, wanted to sign us, so we said, okay. Then we found that Rod had already signed a deal with Mercury Records. Not for very much money either. We said, okay, just so happens that the boss of Mercury Records and the boss of Warner Brothers were great mates. So we worked out something between us. Because they said, well, look, as long as we can still make other solo album. And we promised them one live album, Mercury Records. And then we were about to sign the deal. And I looked down on, on the contract and it, it said, small faces. What? Not signed. Yeah, I said, I said, hang on, we're not signed. We're not the small faces. I said, we can't be called the small faces. We're a completely different band. They said, well, you can't have all this money then. <laughs> so we said, okay, I'll tell you what, we'll call ourselves the Small Faces for this album, the first album, but thereafter we're not, there's nothing small about us, so we're going to shorten it to the Faces. That's how we got the name Faces. So it worked out beautifully.
A lot of people may not know you are playing drums on the great Rolling Stones track. It's only rock and roll, but I like it. Yes, by accident. You, Willie Weeks on bass, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Ronnie Wood, David Bowie was part of that too. Yeah, everyone came in and out. So yeah. When uh, I was in the faces, Ronnie Wood bought a house down in the basement. Funny enough, Pete Townsend lives in it now. And so it's <laughs> kind of weird. I could never lose the house. You know? And so Ronnie Wood built a studio downstairs. And we all lived around Richmond Park. So Ronnie would always call me as soon as I got one foot into bed, you know, one leg into bed. Right. <laughs> and, so, and he'd say, Kenny. We haven't got a drummer. Oh, and I said, oh, no, okay. So I'll be right over Ronnie. I gave Ronnie a drum kit and left it in the studio. Yeah. Worst thing I ever did. So then I found myself on the other side of the park. One day you go down there, Eric Clapton will be down there, and we just all play. And next week, Bob Dylan will be there, someone else will be there, someone else. This particular time, I went around the park. Of course, I had a few before, so I didn't want to bump into any policemen, so it was a nerve-wracking <laughs> experience. Yeah. So I got to Richmond Gate, where I lived on Robin Hood Gate. He lived on Richmond Gate. And so I parked the car, went in. This particular time, Jagger was there. Me, Ronnie Wood and Mick Jagger. So in the studio, and we're playing around, we're messing around. It was me and Jagger just playing away. And Ronnie had a load of new outboard recording equipment. So he was in and out of the studio all the time. Yeah. So And he, was, he had to work. We had no engineer. He had to work it as well. So Jagger and I were just playing at this riff, like, to, you know, you know and it's, it, it was ended up being Sony Rock and Roll, but I like it because... Basically, we're playing away, and Jagger said to me, Kenny, play it like that. I said, it's too late. I'm going to play it like this. I said, anyway, I said, anyway, I said, anyway it's only rock and roll. And he said, but I like it. Ah. And he said, rock and roll, but I like it. So ended up being Ronnie recorded it, and it, later on he came in and put a bass on the guitar, well, a guitar. Uh, and that, that was it. What I found was they took it to the studio as a demo to re-record it. Yeah. And then what I'm told is they couldn't capture the feel. So they just kept myself on drums and the original track. Then I found out it was going to be a single. So I immediately called Charlie up. And I said, Charlie, I can't believe I just found out it's only rock and roll, but I like it. It was me on drums. I said, I said, I'm really sorry. I never meant that to happen. He said, don't worry, Ken. He said, it sounds like me anyway. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it really does. That's the funny thing. So I said, yeah. well, I did have you in mind. That's how it happened. I had by accident.
drum sounds. I'm a drummer, I'm 49, and I'm still looking for that perfect snare drum sound. Ah, uh, we always will be. Yeah. We always, we always will be. That will never leave us. Well, what is your perfect sound? What tonal qualities do you try to achieve with the kit you own? Well, funny enough, when I said earlier, I, I've still got the first kit I played on. Well, that left me for a while. I never knew what happened to it after I'd moved on with drums and stuff. Apparently, I gave it to um, Ronnie Lane's best mate who moved to Cornwall in England, and I never saw it again. And so about three or four years ago, this guy called up and said, my dad's Ronnie Lane's best mate, and he's got your drum kit. He's asked me if you want it back. I said, oh, bloody right, yeah. He said, if you make a donation to Ronnie Lane's multiple sclerosis, I'll bring it down, you can have it. So I said, of course, that's no problem. So mm. he ended up bringing it down. The van doors open, and it, there was my drum kit. I could not believe it. it hadn't been touched at all since I left it. been in his wardrobe. Oh, my God. What I noticed, though, was, you know, I've been, don't forget, I've been for all different snares by this time. Yeah. Well. And the, the snare I had on my original drum kit was a piccolo. Yep. I didn't realize it was a piccolo. I'd forgotten all about it. So I use a piccolo to this day. I love a piccolo. I use big, I've, I've got, you know, the black beauties, the big deep ones, all kinds of stuff, different shapes and sizes. But the piccolo for me captures the crack at the moment. If you had a piccolo on face dancers, it would have been a totally different sound. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was 13 i remember i bought this beautiful picture book and it was the who maximum r&b had all these great photos in it there was a haunting photo of you talking to keith moon mm. the night before he passed at paul and linda's party for the buddy holly story screening i think that's right tell me a little bit of the backstory behind that well glenn johnson and i were putting together a band half american half english we got a huge advance for it 
who were just about to sign. And it was a great band. It was kind of meeting up with like half Eagles, half rock and roll, you know, mm. London rock and roll. Yeah. And so I'd just gone back from America with the other half of the American side of the band. I came straight from the airport into Paul McCartney was having a premiere of the Buddy Holly film. The, but the thing was, you know the after party when you go and see a premiere? Yeah. Well, he had the party before the oh. film. A place called Peppermint Park. We had, we had sitting there having dinner and having a drink, go around the table and having drinks, gone over. But on my table was Paul and Linda, David Frost before he was a sir, Paul's brother who was in the scaffold. And, oh, Mike McGee, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, and Keith. And Keith and I were talking drums and he said, he said, how have you been, Kenny? I said, great. I said, I told him all about my trip to America. And God mm. knows what. I said, how have you been? He said, oh, it's great. So I've been off the booze, uh, drugs, everything, a lot. I said, well, you look good, Keith. You look great. He said, yeah, no, it's great. I take these pills, he said. If I take these pills, I can't drink. If I have a drink, it makes me violently ill. So where are you going? Don't go drinking then. Yeah, he right. said, no, I can't. I can't. No yeah. way. And then, then we found ourselves all walking on mass around the corner to the Odeon in Essex Square to watch the film. So we all watched the film. And then it was about, I don't know, I passed one, two o'clock in the morning. We came out of it and said goodbye to each other. Said goodbye to Keith. See ya. I went back to my house. Crushed like a, you know, just had that jet lag. Mm. Crushed. And then woke up the next morning. You know, always when you turn it, you wake up, you turn the TV on, don't you? Of course. Turn the TV on. And it went straight to the news. And it was like, Keith Moon was found dead last night. And there's a drug overdose. So I went, no. I said, what's he pulled now? Yeah. It can't be, can't be true. It's like nuts. He's done something stupid. And sure enough, it was, it was true, you know. It's only when I joined her, I found out afterwards exactly what happened. Well, that was, he left that premiere. We said goodnight to each other. He went off to his flat, took his evening dose uh, before he goes to bed, uh, uh, the pills he was taken. Went to sleep, woke up a couple of hours later, I thought it was morning, took his morning pill. You can't take these pills too close together, you see. Yeah. And it was enough to slow his heart down. Yeah, that's... Uh, so, and that's how he drove. It's an accident. It, technically, it was a drug overdose, yeah. but it was, was not intentional. No, because the media always tries to play it up as something oh, nefarious. So, or, and of course they do, yeah. You know? Yeah. Mind you, I think I think the way John Emerson went out was fantastic. He's <laughs> staying in the Hard Rock Hotel yep. with a hooker. Cocaine around him. God knows what. I thought, great. I was yeah, right. the way to go. No, I thought, I, thought, I laughed so much. I mean, I, I cried so much, but I also laughed so much. I know. Now, you got the call to join the Who, and it was your quote where you said, you know, you knew it would be a tough gig, but you didn't count on the emotional bit. Well, the thing was, I mean, before I joined the Who, I mean, w, I, was, I had this band I was putting together with uh, Glenn Jones and stuff. My head was in that space, you know? Right. I, I got a call from Bill Kirby, the Who's manager. He, mm. said, he said, oh, Kenny, he said, I'll come straight to the point. The Who have had a meeting. Don't forget, Keith's only been dead a couple of months, you know? He said, the Who have had a meeting, and they want you to join the band. They're not considering anyone else. I said, well, thank you very much for the compliment. I said, that's very kind of you. I said, but I can't. He went, what? I could hear his jaw drop. Mm. What do you mean you can't? So I can't. I told him, I've got another band I'm putting together with Glenn Johns, and we're just about to sign a record deal. He said, well, look, I'll tell you what. He said, Pete's coming into the office a bit later. Come in and have a chat with Pete. I said, I'm always happy to talk to Pete, you know, because Pete and I used to work together a lot. And so that evening I went and I met with Pete. We talked about the good old days of touring together, the small faces in the who, yeah. touring Australia, touring Europe, touring England just laughing for a couple of hours. Then suddenly Pete went, just got home and said, Kenny, you've got to join the band. You're a mod. You're one of us. You know, I saw, I saw, yeah, I saw, I saw, I saw I thought, over we go. And so I, 
I said, I'll tell you what, Pete. I said, the band I'm forming is actually in London today, just staying down the road. I said, I'll go and see them on the way home and just put it to them and see what they say. So I went, talked to the rest of the band. I said, look, I'll come straight to the point again. I said, I've been asked you on the Who. And they said, oh, Kenny, you've got to do it. It was so gracious about it. Oh, man. That's... They said, you've got to do it. I said, well, I, I've got to do, to do this as well. And they, they said, no, no, you've got to do that. You, got, you must do this. So that's how I ended up joining them. Did that other transatlantic band end up getting off the ground at all? No, it didn't. It, it's, it tried to, but it never went far. Um, when I joined them, I said, look, I am not going to copy Keith Moon. It's impossible to copy Keith Moon. Keith's in, got his own style. He's man in his own right. And I respect his drumming, and that's it. I yeah. said, I'm, I'm a completely different drummer. I said, I'm a lot straighter, a bit tighter, and I play a different way. But I do like some of the fills he does. I said, uh, and I love the opportunity just to play them. I, I'll try and compliment Keith as much as I can, but, you know, I'm completely different. I said, okay, great. Pete said to me, now, because Keith's no longer with us, we have a chance to do something completely different. And that's helped me make up, make up my mind. Sure. So, so we're not actually going to copy, go back to being, you know, the who, 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 who all the time. Of course, we never did anything completely different. <laughs> we ended up playing the same thing because that's what all the fans are. So I found myself chucked in at the deep end. Funny enough, towards the end now, I, I kind of find that the penny suddenly dropped and I, I really got into it and I, I started to enjoy it. I mean, you can hear it on the records. The Who became a very, I don't want to say tight, because it sounds like I'm insulting Keith Moon. Moon yeah. is... It's physically impossible to copy Keith Moon, first of all. Well, yes, right. Well, I think Pete sums him up. When, when we played, Keith would, would go all over, all over the place, He'd go somewhere else, go some, all over the place. But he, he would go anywhere, but always to come back in time. Right. So, well, that's Keith, isn't it? You know, it was, I mean, the nearest I got to playing like Keith Moon or feeling out like how Keith would be in, in his shoes was when we were playing Medicine Square Garden. Pete turns around and said, we're going to do a new number, right? We're going to do it. I thought, what's that? I haven't, I haven't even rehearsed it. What is it? I, I, and suddenly Pete announced Sparks. We're going to play Sparks. <laughs> like, ba, 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 da, yeah, da, right. ba. And I went, shit. So Pete, I said, Pete, he went, just follow me. <laughs> so I played with Pete, just follow me. And it was great to play. I've got to say, it was so exciting to play. Not knowing what I was doing. Chuck me in the deep How hard was that first tour? We found ourselves promoting Rodrofina in the film and The Kids Are Alright. They're both films that came out almost identically at times. Yeah. We were doing lots of PR and stuff like that. And then the first tour was good, you know. Then we had the terrible tragedy in Cincinnati. 
I usually at the end of the show, I like to have like a lighthearted thing. What's your worst gig? What's your best gig? But there's nothing funny or lighthearted about your worst gig, which I would imagine would be 1979 in Cincinnati. Uh, when that terrible tragedy happened in Cincinnati, it felt cold on stage. Usually you see people you know on the side of the stage. And whatever. This time, everyone disappeared. Hmm. Well, it was really strange. And they all ran away, and we were playing. Something was not right, I felt, in that, that particular gig. And so when we stopped, we came off stage, and our manager, uh, Bill Kirby, said, no uncle, come straight off, come straight off, straight to the dressing room. And we went straight to the dressing room. And then he said, look, he said, 11 kids died tonight. Oh, I, we went, fuck, oh God. You know that moment of shock, the whole room filled up with water. Yeah. And he, yeah. I was still talking uh, and suddenly I felt it to subside and then, oh shit, I can't believe this has happened. I can't believe it. So none of us knew why. We were told briefly that, you know, the promoter, uh, his kids arrived late, got off the bus, we struck up the first song, and so they all heard us play, and they went through the doors and down the stairs. One fell over, the other one fell over, and they fell down the stairs. And they only had like two of the ten or whatever many doors opened. Yeah, funny enough. And also, we took out double insurance, or Bill Kirby, our manager, took out double insurance to make sure that didn't happen. All the, all the doors should be open. The promoter closed the doors. The thing that I resent, I live in a city right over from Providence, Rhode Island, and Providence... Our mayor, in his infinite wisdom at the time, was the first mayor to cancel right. the show. And it seemed like the media liked to blame the band or blame. There was zero oh, blame. We had to go back and give evidence and all that. That was another nerve wracking experience. That's what I was going to ask you. Well, because yeah. everyone was suing, you know, it's typical American, you know, everyone sues everybody. You know? Yeah. yeah. But the, I've got to say, the families, of the, they just lost their loved ones and they wrote some wonderful letters to us saying, you know, they don't hold us responsible at all. No, but we weren't responsible. Of course. It'll never leave us. It'll never leave me. It'll never, never leave any one of us in the band. When you listen to certain songs, are there any tracks where you go, oh, man, I wish I could re-record that. I don't like the sound. I don't like what I played. No, I think, to be honest, mostly we were, we were pretty much on it. I think that one of the gigs uh, we did, which I found a little bit uh, stiff, was when we were asked to do the gig in Toronto, and we were played the first ever simulcast. So we played live across the world yep. to everybody. You mean the last show, the farewell yeah, tour? Yeah, that's right. And, and just... I thought, I've got a super glue drumsticks to my hands. I don't want to drop one. <laughs> so no nerve-wracking experience. We played tighter than we normally would. It's still a good gig. That was the first time I ever heard you guys. That really? night. Very first. I said, because it was such a happening. I sat yeah. at the radio. It was all simulcast. Yeah. And I said, I got to listen to this. It's it's a tight gig. I mean, there's... It's a tight gig, yeah. Live Aid. That one yeah. seemed tense. Am I wrong? The whole day was a little bit like that. To be honest, we were only given 20 minutes to play each band. And also, they had a set of traffic lights on stage. I don't know if you know this. They had a set of traffic lights each side of the stage, like yep. red, green, amber. Right. And, and so they said, we'll give you the, the amber one, then, then, the, then the, the green one, or, the, or whatever. So, and the red one means stop. I mean, we, we mean stop, obviously, pulling the plug. So that was a bit of a tense moment. Trying to end a song, you're going nuts all over it. You know, we didn't see the first two songs. Uh, certain moments in there where you can't buy these certain moments. Right? Mm. Pete's got to, why don't you f- fade away? The fucking satellite blew up. Yep. And we literally faded away for about two minutes. You know how pissed I was? Yeah, why not? Rick Springfield's set was fine. The satellites worked perfect. Yeah. But you guys, the one I was waiting for no. all day? No. Uh, the other time it happened was when we were doing Rain On Me in Buffalo in the stadium. We were playing away. 
and Roger's singing out, rain on me, getting to the big crescendo, and suddenly the heavens opened up, and a shitload of rain came down, oh, all wow. soaking wet, and because it's quite windy, blowing it on stage, and I started laughing. I couldn't, I thought, you can't buy these moments. No, you can't. No, you can't. can't buy Your health. From what I understand, you're doing great. Yeah. Talk so about I, that a little bit. Well, I I, uh, I just learned to fly a helicopter, believe it or not, and I went to um, get my medical for the helicopter pilot license. Yeah. Well. Just got my license. Never believed the name of this guy, the doctor. The name of the doctor was Dr. Trump. Oh, God. <laughs> Trump's a bad woman, man. Wow. So Dr. Trump said to me, he kept looking at me because he said, he said, what band do you play with? I said, the who? He said, hearing tests. I said, okay, right. <laughs> so, so I just, I just, I press a button every time I heard the beat, you know, so beep, 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 and I press a button. Yeah. Of course, it's a rhythm, isn't it? So, yep. boop, 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 and I kept doing it. I kept pressing it even when I couldn't hear it. <laughs> he came back and he said, I've got to say, you have exceptional hearing. I said, pardon? <laughs> <laughs> so he came over and said, uh, I came and touched my throat and that felt my neck and all that. I have got to be part of the thing, whatever. He said, does it hurt there? I said, no. He said, I'll just call the nurse in. The nurse came in. He said to the nurse, do you see any difference between this side of Mr. Jones' neck on, on the other? And she said, oh, yes, doctor, that side of his neck's too big, <laughs> bigger than the other. I, I, I said, what's going on? He said, look, he said, whatever you do, he said, don't panic. I, it's only because I'm a doctor and my whole family's been plagued with thyroid problems. So mm. I automatically, as a doctor, go straight to that part of the body. Sure. He said, I'm going to give you a note to take to your doctor. I think she had checked out straight away. Now I am panicking. So... Luckily, I've got Dr. Whiteson. I uh, went straight in there, past the reception, straight up. He had someone with him in his, in his surgery. I said, get rid of her. Said, Look at this. I said, I said, she's only got a cold. Look at that. And he said, you can't come first in the night. I said, yeah. So anyway, it all calmed down. And so he sent me to a specialist. And this is funny as well. When, you, when you're sort of a professor or someone high up, you know, you become a mister. Yeah. You're no longer a doctor. You're a mister. Okay. So, so mister Mr. Chowstry, his name was. He sent me off to have a scan, and that afternoon, I straight back again. You know when you're in a waiting room, these terrible Victorian waiting rooms, eye ceilings, and you start looking at other people around and waiting in there. Oh, that lady looks like she's got nothing wrong with her. That one looks like she's definitely got cancer or something like that. Mm, yeah. Something wrong with that one. So talking to myself, and suddenly I found myself in the doctor's room. He was just writing on a desk. He didn't look up at all. I'm sitting there. He said, okay, so I think you're uh, not, it's not very good news. I said, oh. I said what's what? that? He said, I'm afraid you have an adenoma. I said, oh, thank God for that. I thought I had cancer. He just kept looking at me. He kept looking at me and staring at me. So I said, what's an adenoma? He said, cancer. He said, you have a lump in your throat, four centimetres, size of a small boiled egg. I said, you're joking. He kept talking about the consequences of cancer and all that. And he said, we need to do an operate straight away. The whole room filled up with water again. Yeah, uh, yeah. In the oh, show, yeah. suddenly he kept, he kept talking, and I could hear him this time. And as, as I wanted to subside, yeah. I, I said, "Well, I'm going away to uh, Florida." You know, he said, "I said, can you do the operation when I come back?" He said, "No." He said, "Let me put it this way: if you were my son, I'd have you in tomorrow." I said, "Right, I'm now adopted. I'm coming in tomorrow." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's it. And uh, waking up in the morning with my throat cut, with, with a tube going in one end, another tube going in the other end. Yeah. And I couldn't move my hands to do anything. The only thing that took my mind off it was this nurse. This nurse came in, Irish nurse. She had the biggest tits I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, great. <laughs> so I found myself, I couldn't piss. I couldn't have a wee because the, the, apparently the drip that gives you all the painkillers was running too fast. Yeah. So I slowed that down. And I had the best piss of my life. <laughs> <It was> great. <laughs> so, then, so I got over that when 
then, you know, that was it. So when I got prostate cancer in, in 2014, many years later, it wasn't scary for me. I was concerned, but not scary. I mean... Because you'd I'd been always, through it, you came out the I, other I, end, yeah. Yeah, I, I'd had a shot. I called it early, so to viewers, you know, you're not viewers, listeners, I can still get hard on. <laughs> there you go. Done. Yeah. I can do rim shots with my knob. Fucking hurt, so. <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. all I can say to everybody is please get a PSA check, a, 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 a prostate check. Literally, it's when you're when you're about 35, 40 years old, start getting one every year, then every six months. Just keep checking it because it's one of the biggest killers on the planet. What's on the horizon? What's next? Well, apart from doing the faces stuff, I've been raising lots of funds, uh, money over the years for prostate cancer, and had some great fun musically doing it. I've got my own band called the Jones Gang. Funny enough, when we had a hit called Angel, number one hit in America, it must be going over 12 years ago now. Yep. So that was great fun to do. I've still got the band together. and I'm playing all the time. I'm going to make sure that we plug the book. Oh, the book, yeah. All yeah, right. Good times, though. I, yeah, see what you did there? I get it. Yeah. I got it. Very clever. <laughs> and it's a camp fight. Can play, any fool can fall, you can live, any stuff can reproduce, you can please, anyone can fail, you can lose. It's hard, it's very, 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 very hard. can find, any girl can blink, you can lie, anyone can promise, you can raise, anyone can try, but if you can stay, it's hard.
featuring Kenny Jones on drums from 1982. That's The Who with It's Hard. And I want to thank Kenny Jones for taking the time to talk with us on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. David, what did you think of that? I love I love listening to that song. It just rocks. It rocks. What about the interview? It was great. I knew a lot of the stuff because, like I said, I've been a Who fan, God, since probably 81, 82. You know, and I told him that, too, right off the bat. And you're not supposed to do that. But I just said, Kenny, I, I know I'm supposed to be professional, but I don't give a fuck. You are my hero. Very- you're going to have to beep that word out. <laughs> the thing I didn't know about him was uh, his two bouts with cancer. That was pretty intense. I know. He's done a lot of fundraising for it with other bandmates and stuff to promote, you know, the fight against it. And uh, we've all had somebody in our family that, that has suffered from that cancer your dad, I believe. Yeah, my it, dad right? did, yeah. 70 years of age, and it's, it's, and, he, and he's kicked it, too. He kicked it. So many men today just don't want to talk about it. It's one of those things, that, you know, but he, you know, Kenny said it right. Get that PSA test. I was telling him, too. He didn't, because he's in England. And I said, geez, you know, around here. In he's United in England? St- oh, yeah. My gosh, he sounded like he was right across the table from you. No, he, no, no. Holy moly. Oh, yeah. And he said, right um, you know, I told him, I said, in America, they won't pay for those tests before the age of 50. He was shocked. And I worried about health insurance out there. They have more important things to worry about, like living. You a Who fan, Dave, back in the day? Oh, yeah. I've had my Who collections. Yeah. Quadrophenia and all that. The earlier stuff. Uh, second album, Who's Next? That was another one. Big albums. Uh, yeah. Big albums, but a couple of, I think I had a Faces album too. I, I we love, call them albums. <laughs> now we call I, them projects, but they, you know, back then they're known as albums. I still call them albums. Yeah. What a difference. I mean, Rod Stewart to me, I don't, this whole new Rod Stewart crap that he's doing now, I don't know. To me, he will always be associated with the Faces and rock and roll. I just hope they go back to that because like Kenny alluded to, there will be a tour hopefully next year once this pandemic is hopefully eradicated. Yes. Are you up for going, Dave? Want to go sit in the front row, watch the faces? Uh, Come on. I don't know. Is there a section there for the elderly? <laughs> <laughs> Can I say something? Uh, when he talked about his uh, the bit of a drum kit, about having pieces of his first drum kit, yeah, I was just blown away by that whole section of questions. That was like great. It, I love to hear things like, "How'd you start out? What was your kit like? And what was you know what did you?" progress to and boy you hit it right on the head when you asked him that question it was really cool well, mine was the same way when i was a kid i just hobbled it together whatever drums i could find you know and it looked like the kit that jack built it was all yep. crooked and different colors and all that and uh, that's what you do that's the fun part starting off on whatever you can get your hands on and you know it just shows like no matter how big a guy is they all start the same way i you know i had to look up the word skiffle a skiffle group Skiffle was like, that. yeah, that was, um, that's like a slight precursor to rock and roll. You know, um, Lonnie Donegan, if you ever heard his stuff, he had a one hit in America, I think it was uh, definitely before your time, way before my time. Uh, does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? Do you hear that? <laughs> no. Oh, no, I can't say it. Either. Come on, get, get on YouTube. You'll love it. Uh, but can it, we play that track, please? Yes, no. but it was. It was all just homemade instruments. As he described with the washboard and the string and all that. That's Yeah. And and yeah. you know, and kids were into that. Very, very, you know, and the Beatles most famously, John Lennon, when he was a kid, formed a skiffle group and that's what got him started. And then he, you know, rock and roll kind of came out simultaneously a little bit after, but you didn't have to be rich to have a skiffle group because like you said, you just cobbled together whatever you could get around the house. Mom's kitchen. Mom's kitchen. <laughs> well, Dave, we are gonna keep this a little short today. So yeah. I wanna once again thank Kenny Jones for being so generous with his time. 
And don't forget to check out his autobiography, Let the Good Times Roll, available on Amazon. And just check out our show notes for the link to that and his website. And David Tate, seriously, thank you for your continued support over the months we've been on the air and, of course, the years I've known you personally. And visit us online at www. It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. We're on in Facebook and Instagram at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. And David, any final thoughts? Thanks a lot. See you later. I'll call you in another 20 episodes. Make it 10. You bastard. shall I do? Hallelujah, the question is peculiar, I'd give a lot of dough, if only I could know, the answer to my question, is it yes or is it no, does your chewing gum lose its flavour on the bedpost overnight, if your mother says don't chew it, do you swallow it in spite, can you catch it on your tonsils, can you heave it left and right, does your chewing gum lose its flavour on the bed? It comes a blushing bride The groom is by her side Up to the altar Just as steady as Gibraltar While the groom has got the ring And it's such a pretty thing But as she slips it on Her finger the choir begins to sing Does your chewing gum lose its flavour On the bedpost overnight If your mother said don't chew it Do you swallow it in spite Can you catch it on your tonsils and you hear it left and right Let your chewing gum lose its flavour On the bedpost overnight Now the nation rises one To send their honoured sons Up to the White House Yeah, the nation's only White House To voice their discontent Unto the President Upon the burning question What has swept this continent? If tin whistles are made of tin What do they make foghorns out of? Boom, boom! Does your chewing gum lose its flavour on the bedpost overnight? If your mother says don't chew it, do you swallow it in spite? Can you catch it on your tonsils and you hear it left and right? Does your chewing gum lose its flavour on the bedpost overnight? On the bedpost overnight? Oh, then I love you and I want to hold you tight. A Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night on the bedpost Sing another chorus, but he hasn't got the time. Hey.